Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Stanford University-educated Rachel Braunschell is a self-confessed badgerpreneur. She co-founded Sparks Solutions for Growth. She helps companies and entrepreneurs like me grow their business in the female health industry, especially around sexual wellness. She really has made her business of going down there. In 2015, Rachel was recognized as one of the best 50 Women in Business by NJ Biz. And in addition to that, she's the recipient of Smart CEOs Bravo Awards honoring top female CEOs. Rachel. Hi, how are you? I am so well. Welcome to the show. It's great to see you. I feel like it was just yesterday. Well, wait, it was. I was on your show. <laughs> That's what I love about this space. There's the reciprocity and all the community back and forth that has given the Femtech community some strength. Well, you were one of the pioneers, actually, that very early on when we created the Body Agency was there advising me about this industry. And I was sort of like a deer in a headlight, knowing that we needed to do something to fill these gaps in Femtech but also in physical healthcare for women, not just our vaginas, but beyond our vaginas, right? It really is from head to toe. And I had the opportunity, I mean, not many people could recommend a vendor to make vulva coasters. Yes, I did ask Rachel, everyone out there, I was like, I want to make a vulva coaster. Do you know anyone? And I said, I'm just the person. <laughs> That's a whole different story. Now, I have had the pleasure of getting to know Rachel over the years that I've been building our enterprise. And Rachel has both written a book. It's called Orgasmic Leadership, which of course we love. Like who doesn't love a good orgasm, first of all? But combination of orgasms and leadership, I mean, that's just a double whammy bammy. But before we go there, my first question to you is you call yourself a vagipreneur, which I love. And when you first said that to me, I burst out laughing Obviously, you've invented this term, which is absolutely brilliant. This is something that I would have done, but you beat me to it. So tell us what a vagipreneur is and what does a vagipreneur do? Okay, first of all, shout out to Abby Ellen, who is a New York Times reporter who wrote the first article where we were talking about the product I was working on at the time in a public setting. And she, and I give her a shout out every time and in the book, she says, oh, you're in the business and you do vaginas and you're entrepreneurs. Oh, I get it. You're vagipreneurs. And every time I walked into a room or introduced myself, it really serves to break the ice. Either people find it funny or they have follow-up questions, but it really is meant to describe a person who is in the business of sexual and reproductive health, which as we all know is bigger than the vagina. And as I was saying it and, you know, had permission from Abby, I finally said, you know what? I really like this. I want to trademark it. You came up with it. If you're not using it, can I see if I can take it through the trademark process? And did you? I did. So it's trademarked. Amazing. Well, I'm definitely going to use it moving forward because I do like a little shock factor as well. You know, in this space, you really do have to, and you know this as well as I, you know, besides knowing your stuff, I found that having a sense of humor goes a long way. You're talking about stuff 
that is second nature to the two of us and lots of people we interact with on a daily basis. But I think we are still the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, you know, I have to say in the, I guess it's been three years really from the sort of idea of the body agency to getting it to where it is today. I literally had no idea. I didn't even know what femtech was. And you in those early days were way ahead of the game with, you know, the consultancy work that you were doing through your company, Spark Solutions, which is a strategic marketing company that you run and founded, where you help organizations like the body agency, but also very established companies. You know, you've worked with Merck and all sorts of, you know, huge companies in the femtech space. And as you know, I've worked in global health, especially female health for 25 years and had never heard the term femtech before, but realized when, you know, we started having our conversations and I really started delving into that world that mixing tech with healthcare and then creating these partnerships with these either small or large companies is absolutely the way forward. So my question to you is, when did you start doing this and why? So it's really fun. And femtech as a term didn't even exist until 2016 when Ida Tint from Clue, lots of people know that story, but one of the first pregnancy tracking apps, she came up with it. And then Cindy Gallup added sex tech. And just before we move on and speaking about the terms, I've been asked on dozens of occasions, and I imagine you have as well, you know, what do you think? Is that a good description? Is it femtech? Is it sex tech? Is it too narrow? Is it too broad? And my answer is always the same. As long as it's promoting and catalyzing conversation, we're making progress moving in the right direction. So, you know, if you want to take all comers in that space, and we are really starting as an industry to define it much more broadly, which is great, you know, that I'm all for it. But in terms of getting into it, I mean, I've been working on women's businesses before these terms existed, you know, for decades. And I've worked on businesses that affect women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes. So hair care, skin care, oral care, psoriasis, foot fungus, incontinence, menstruation, disease prevention, you name it. And when I say head to toe, I do start at hair care and end at foot fungus. And in 2008, my business partner, Mary Yench, and I, we were business partners for 20 years in the consultancy and in this middle chapter. And then subsequently, we saw an asset that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And when you're in marketing strategy and growth, you're always looking for an emotionally engaging category. Turns out there's very few categories that are as emotionally engaging for better or worse than intimacy and sexuality. So we raised a boatload of venture capital, and we built that business around that product, again, which improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction. It was patented. It was clinically tested in a very pharmaceutical-ish design with 13 double-blind placebo-controlled leading sexual health centers, excuse me, and all of the participants were double-blind placebo-controlled, which basically for people who haven't ever been involved in one, all that means is it's a way to say, if you see an improvement, you can attribute it to the actual efficacy of the product as opposed to a placebo. Okay, so many questions. First of all, do you mind telling us what this product was? Oh, sure. It was Zestra Essential Arousal Oils. It was created by a man named Martin Crosby. And like so many things in this space, it was serendipitous. He was working with MS patients and he was putting different 
concoctions, if you will, together and noticed that they were getting some response and then took it into a clinical to say, oh, could this work on areas of female sexual response? And that's how it started. When we bought the asset, the clinical study had been completed. You know, we did the analysis and the publication and the presentation. But when we bought the asset, we kept that the same, obviously, because that had been approved with that formula and essentially changed everything else. We changed the packaging. We changed the product descriptor. We changed the positioning. We changed the distribution. We changed essentially everything that existed except the core formula and really pushed out to try to get the message out there. And so that's kind of where the story starts is a couple of things. When we started, this was in the, you know 2008, 2009, 2010, when we bought the asset, you know we had to go through, I don't know, figure out what word you want to do. The humiliation, the frustration, the exasperation of going to Silicon Valley as two middle-aged women trying to raise money not only were we women, and you know we all know the statistics, which in my mind just means you have to be better prepared. The second they considered us first-time entrepreneurs, even though we had run a successful consultancy that had been profitable from day one with 97% repeat business, didn't count because we had never raised money. And the third is that we're talking about vaginas. And talking mostly to men, by the way. Oh, for sure. For sure, for sure. And I do want to say, listen, we're not bashing men. At all. We need men in order to do the business of the vagina, right? We need men to understand. We need to educate them. We need them on board. So I'm all for boys for the girl effect. It was just funny. And I, I write about that a lot in the book and this one particular experience where we go to 13 VCs in a two-day period and they all start to blend. And we go to the first one and they say, how is this different than Viagra? And we give them a scientific description about the female sexual response versus the male sexual response. And we had heretofore thought that the worst thing that could happen in a pitch meeting is that people are silent. Turns out it's worse if they're laughing and whispering. So that's what we were experiencing. We go into the second meeting and they say, what does this clinical study say about his satisfaction? And we say, well, it's anecdotal in nature. What we were really testing was her response, her improvement in arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Where we see his satisfaction improve, it's a function of feeling like a more able partner or being happy that his partner was happy. And it's clear we're not going to leave here with any money because we're spending all the time in the place they don't like, talking about the vagina or the vulva or arousal, desire, and satisfaction. So in between the second and third meeting, Mary and I came up with an idea, and it was built around this $100 bill. And I've told this story before, but I happened to have a $100 bill in my wallet, which was unusual because I'm so compulsive that I track all my spending. So I never use cash because, you know, I'm not writing little notes, spent that on groceries. So we find this $100 bill and we say, listen, we have 11 more of these and we want to leave with money. Let's try something totally new. So we're whispering, you know, like game day changes, real time, uh, not Monday morning quarterbacking, actual quarterbacking. And we go into the third meeting and I have the $100 bill. And as we had planned, I smack it on the table and I say, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If someone makes a sexual joke that we haven't heard before, this $100 is yours. And if anyone makes any kind of double entendre or sexual innuendo that makes us blush, this $100 is yours. And then paused for effect and said, she likes it more, she wants to have it more, let's talk about the business model. 
And in the book, I write about that's the moment where I stepped into orgasmic leadership, which is really figuring out a way to have a conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. You know, the femtech and sex tech world that we're in, in 2023, you know, has many things in common with the world that I entered. We have made major improvements, but there are still some fundamental issues that we have talking about female sexuality. And now, as I live in the space and you're working in a public health setting, but one of the things that's always been frustrating is, for lack of a better technical term, the piss poor state of sexual education, certainly in this country and from what I understand around the world where not all states require sex ed, some of them that mandate sexual education don't require it to be medically or scientifically accurate. So just back to this sexual arousal oil, because first of all, I should tell you that Around the same time, probably 2004, I was approached, I was doing Youth Aids at the time. I founded this organization called Youth Aids and I get your problem. I was raising nonprofit dollars, but we really had to talk about people having sex and putting on a condom and talking about, you know, a dildo and this is how we do condom demonstrations. And, you know, it's the business of sex, right? It's still the business of sex but we're solving a massive global pandemic and crisis at the time, right? It was rampant. So I already knew coming into the space, the stigma of the issues of anything to do with sex. And I was actually even asked to leave a panel at the World Economic Forum once because I was talking about contraception. I consider that a badge of honor. If that had been me, I would have taken a big picture and blown it up. This is the day that I stood up to the world. I mean, it's so absurd. Absurd. However, it all worked out in the end because I got the founder of the World Economic Forum. His name is Professor Klaus Schwab. And, you know, he's very senior now, but he's holding on. And I got him to wear a T-shirt that says, I am a boy for the girl effect. And I eventually went on to do this presentation and he was in the room and there was this massive standing ovation. And so it was a breakthrough is all I'm saying. And our work, it's constant barriers, right? And then constant breakthroughs. And I think one of the things that we connect on, that we've connected on is, yeah, it's frustrating, but we have this innate passion and focus you know, you're not going to beat me. No matter how many brick walls we run into, we're going to find a way up, over, through, around, whatever it is. I find I have to laugh at the absurdity because otherwise you'd just be pulling your hair out. I was invited to speak about female leadership, women leading, and how women speak and lead and communicate. And I was told in a group of 500 women that I couldn't say the name of the book that they had invited me to talk about. I speak for an hour and a half, two hours. It's interactive. We're doing all these exercises. There's a lot of energy in the room. And at the end of the presentation, when people are getting into the Q&A, someone raises their hand and says, what's the name of your book? And I literally just turned to my sponsor and I said, am I at liberty to answer that question? Because they clearly told me it's a pharmaceutical company, very highly regulated. They had said to me, you can't name it. But then in that circumstance, they said, oh, you got asked a direct question. I'll let you answer. Or I've had to do presentations where I just put a, a sheet over the name of the book. These things are absurd, and I wish they were uncommon. Um, but sadly, they're not. I love your story. I wish I'd been in the audience. Oh, I can probably one-up you on another one of my favorite stories of all time. 
in this business, I was invited to go and do a keynote speech at a private Swiss bank. And it was the super duper, I can't name them, but it was their super duper, 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 high profile, high net worth individual. You know, it's their wealthiest families from all over the world. So they're not messing around when they bring you in. They are not messing around. And I can't even remember what the topic was. I think it was like, it was very broad, you know, female health or something along those lines before I started the body agency. Anyway, the speaker before me, I had had a couple of cocktails with her the night before and she was just amazing. And she had told me that she was going to sabotage her own talk that she was going to give on female leadership or, you know, something very vanilla. And this woman, and I can't remember her name now, but she was kind of like an idol for me. So she gets up and she starts all very lovely talking about being a female leader and it's all very calm and lovely and everyone's nodding. And then she said, but I'm actually really, really interested in one topic. And that is what happens to your brain when you have an orgasm. And I could literally see the room just erupt because it was 90% men in gray suits, right? So she then goes on to talk about, because she really wanted to understand what happens to a female brain when they have an orgasm. So she went to New York. She went to have a brain scan. She's telling this story. Like, I, I mean, seriously, I'm about to like have like nervous laughter right now because... I was so elated, but also so horrified at what was going on in the room. She then says, well, the only way that I could test my brain was I had to masturbate with all these scientists around the chamber as I'm in there. And, you know, when you're like, someone's watching you and you really need to pee and you just can't do it because everyone is there in their medical coats. Performance anxiety. So she's in there masturbating away, basically. And literally, there were just gasps in the room. And definitely no wealth flowed in her direction. That is for sure and certain. And the bank members were so freaked out that I had brought one of my lovely donors and Maverick Collective members. And we were up the next day. And because of what she had done, they basically cut our session completely short and said there was no way that this room is ready to hear. I remember it was a banker, a very senior partner there. And he said, you cannot talk about anything from the waist down is what he said to me. That was his brief. So favorite moment of all time. And I love this woman who, you know, those are the things that change the world for us. And I think that in every movement, and in ours, I think it's Cindy Gallup. There are people who have to be that far ahead in the conversation. So I've had the experience where I'm called after Cindy is called. And she's the bomb. I can't say enough amazing things about her. So I'm a huge fan. And I get called by this reporter. And he says, I just interviewed Cindy Gallup. And I just want to ask you a couple of questions that I asked her and get your perspective. And for those who haven't heard that episode that you did or don't know Cindy, she's basically a dynamo, an advertising executive, a, you know, a person of the world. And she's created this business called Make Love Not Porn. The tagline is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Anyway, in the context of that, she really is talking about how we get 
not just sex education, but social sex education. How do we understand how to interact? What words do we use? What does consent look like? So, and in that role, again, I think it works great with a British accent, which she also has, she really is pushing the envelope of the conversation. And she's so powerful that she importantly, and rightly so, gets a lot of attention. So I get this call and they said, I just spoke to Cindy Gallup and she told me that, you know, 30% of sex is had in a car and 30% is had in a kitchen. So Cindy thinks we should be going to the car designers of BMW and Jaguar and telling them to redesign the seats so that they're more accessible to have sex in them to accommodate all the sex that's being had in these vehicles. And He says, what do you think? And I said, I think every movement needs a Cindy. I think every movement needs someone who's so far ahead of the curve that they're saying these things that sound preposterous, but with sheer force of personality and will and community, we might get there. I said, when you ask me, I want to be able to say the word vagina on TV. So I'm starting a little bit smaller than Cindy, you know, as opposed to redesigning our kitchen counters and the height they are to make them better suited for spontaneous sex on the island. So I have a couple of questions regarding this. So the viewers will have heard Cindy's podcast. So I have questions for you regarding the response. First of all, we are now allowed to say vagina on through Meta. I feel like so many of the people that are in our network have helped get that there. A hundred percent. But I will also tell you, and I like to celebrate the victories, it's great that Meta changed the policy, but there are many businesses who are still experiencing the same pushback. Yeah. And meanwhile, Pornhub is one click away, right? right. So it just doesn't make sense. You and I are talking about medically accurate health information, whether you're a parent of a teen whether you are a vagina owner, and if you're a penis owner, what you need to know about the vagina. And I don't know this for sure, but you obviously have a podcast. You had me on. Thank you very much. It's called The Business of the V. I am sure that you used V at the time instead of vagina because you wouldn't have been able to use it out there commercially. Like, is that the case? I mean, I'm just guessing. I mean, we wanted to have a catchy name. We talk about vaginas and body parts and vulvas and clitoris all the time on the show, but we wanted it to be engaging to grab people's attention. So make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, but also interested. Yeah, we could have said the business of the vulva, which is really much more accurate, but the truth is it isn't just what's in your underwear. It's literally the combination of things that have an impact on women's health, physiology, psychology, sociology, emotional behavior, context, physical concerns, the medication you're on. And one of the things going back to this person in the bank is what I really push the narrative towards, and there are many other people doing this as well, is I don't have to shock you. You know, I go into an investor meeting and I'm speaking to investors every day. I won't shock you. Let me just tell you the business opportunity that's represented by this. So we always hear the word niche, and I hope before I die, no one ever uses that word to describe female health. But I had a conversation two weeks ago with an investor, and he said, oh, we've already looked at a menopause business. We're good. As if menopause is a singular thing, as opposed to dozens of symptoms lasting potentially dozens of years. And it's too much of a niche, which we've all heard, to which I always say, in 2025, 1.1 billion women will be in menopause. I challenge you to find a niche 
that is that big where once you're in it, you never leave. But isn't it something like an untapped six billion or trillion dollar market? It's crazy. It's hundreds and hundreds of millions and truly billions of dollars. Because one of the things that is happening that needs to happen is we're not just talking about what does it cost to manage the symptoms. We're talking about from a business perspective, what does it cost to not manage the systems in terms of turnover, in terms of productivity, in terms of families' financial stability. You know, all the things, COVID has at least given us the opportunity to connect what people are doing at work with what they're doing at home and understanding that if they are going through something, that it can have an impact on what they earn and how they feel. So I feel, though, in the short time that I've been a vajrapreneur, not as a bigger vajrapreneur that you are, but My vagipreneur is bigger than yours. Is that what a guy would say? (laughs) (laughs) Probably. I don't know. I'm kind of fond of mine. I think it's kind of pretty. But what I wanted to say was over the short time that I've been in this business of the V, the name of your podcast, is that I've seen incredible progress. I really have. I've had conversations with, you know, all the big organizations that wouldn't have gone near this in a trillion years, even like Procter & Gamble and Merck and Organon and, you know, the biggies, the biggies who we really need, right? Like if these big companies get behind what we are doing, we will make a huge dent in the industry and also in finding solutions for a lot of these things. And then the second part of this is, as you so expertly say, is educating our next generation about their bodies without taboo and shame and not using words like foo-foo and pee-pee. And in fact, (laughs) I actually remember talking to you about our vulva puppet. There it is. We have one in brown now as well. I'm holding up the puppet. And we realized that, you know, the work that I do used to do around the world in development and still do for even medical providers, there was only a male penis that would demonstrate how to put a condom on. There wasn't any vulva puppet or anything, maybe a diagram, but a lame one. And so now there's a number of vulva puppets out there, right? Which is, you know, it's a small thing, but... No, but you have to mark these victories. And when you talk about progress... There are hundreds of companies in this space. There are new sources of capital that are focused on diverse founders, female founders, founders specifically in women's health, founders specifically in femtech. We've made an enormous, enormous amount of progress. We've seen some exits. Some of the players that you mentioned have been involved in, you know, buying companies in their relative infancy. And the conversation is much, much broader. And there's so many factors that made that happen. You know, I I give this talk that's called In a Hot Flash, Women's Health and Overnight Sensation Centuries in the Making. Because to people who haven't been in the space, it feels like, oh my God, everywhere I go, we're talking about menopause. And right now, that does feel like the case. But think of what had to change. A lot of famous people had to enter menopause and they use their platforms to talk about it. That's one piece. There's a lot more money. A lot more women have successfully exited businesses or inherited wealth or made money and they're investing back in these founders. It changes the whole trajectory of the space. 
When you go to the corporates, and that's where I spend a lot of my time, is really figuring out what are they looking for, these large companies, in terms of growing their portfolio in particular areas, and what venture-backed startups are out in the world that may have no line of sight or no connection to these companies. So I consider myself almost like the matchmaker in the middle, making sure, because in many of these cases, I've worked with every company in pharmaceuticals, consumer health, health and wellness, devices, and they have different strategies. And they have different strategies as it relates to women's health. They have different names that they call this part. You know, some call it intimate wellness, some call it reproduction. Depending on what products they have, they think about this space differently. And given that there are hundreds and hundreds of companies, there are no doubt companies that will fit the portfolio of one, if not more, of these companies. And that's really where I see a huge amount of value is making those connection points. So you will be happy to know that, I know you've worked with Merck, but I'm sure you know that their female health division has now broken away and started its own company. It's called Organon now, but still a $6 billion company. And at their global retreat this year, as goodie bags, they put in the Volvo Coaster and the Volvo Puppet. I mean, that would never have happened five years ago. For people who are listening, that's like in women's health as big as discovering the wheel or electricity. It is so cataclysmically different and reflects so much progress that it's like I could weep. It's amazing. And then I was asked to go and speak at the World Economic Forum to the Young Global Leaders. And I decided to pull not an orgasm chamber, but the best next thing where it was kind of an Oprah moment where I was like, you get a Vuppet, you get a Vuppet. I had brought a Vuppet. And then after the giggles, right? Because I mean, it's so immature if we think about it, right? Half of the world owns a vagina, right? Half of the world bleeds. Half of the world can hopefully make babies, right? That's what God made our bodies for, right? Whether you are Muslim, Catholic, Jewish, right? That's how a baby is made and it comes out of a vagina, shock and horror. And then those, as you say, those billions of women will then go through menopause. And I worked in global health for 25 years. Not once did I hear the word menopause because you are not considered worthy right? Because you are apparently not able to produce children anymore to be cared for. You know, when I got into this, it was so shocking that then, you know, actually a few weeks ago, I got a call from Starbucks and, you know, I love going to my Starbucks for my six bucks. Yes. I call it six bucks because you cannot get anything in Starbucks for less than six bucks. And they say to me, would you be able to help us to put a policy together for our menopausal staff. And I just was like, I was silent. You know, I just didn't know what to do with myself because I just thought this is a breakthrough of massive proportions. Because if companies like Organon and Procter & Gamble and Starbucks are really taking into consideration our entire ecosystem, because guess what? When you invest in a woman who's going through menopause, 
she is going to be better in the workplace. And Starbucks have realized that, right? And there's so many studies around that right now. So 25 years ago, folks woke up and said, you know, our best and our brightest are leaving during motherhood. Let's give them egg freezing benefits and IVF and let's help them figure out a way to start a family in whatever way they want to start it. And where menopause is today, we're 25 years behind, but starting to have those conversations. Why they did that to keep their valuable employees. Why wouldn't you? You know, on average, a woman in menopause is older. She's likely at the peak of her career. She might be at the small window in her life when she's not caring for young children or older parents. And she has a huge amount of wisdom and knowledge. Why wouldn't you want to keep her? And it turns out if you do keep her, she's more productive. You reduce the spending on search firms. You reduce the turnover. You increase productivity. It's a financial win. And the companies are really starting to understand that. I never present women's health as a nice to do. It is wonderful and it's important and it's nice to do it. But you know what? You have to sell people on what they're interested in. They're interested on what benefits them or their community or their constituents. And from the employer side, they really are waking up and saying we need programs in menopause. We also, what we need to do jointly with these companies is make it easy for the end recipient, which as you know, it's what the body agency is all about. Actually, our two leading selling kits are the happy hormone kit, because I can't tell you the amount of women who come to me and say, I have no idea. What do I need? Like what's going on with my hormones? How do I treat my hot flashes? How do I, how do I, how do I? But then secondly, our first period kit, which actually has the Vupid in it. This was what you were so excited about from the inception. Well, you know why as well? Like, I'm a mom. I have a 12-year-old daughter. And, you know, I'm in the business. And it's hard to sit your kid down and talk about puberty and talk about sex. And, and I'm in the business. So take another parent and... You put that parent in Indonesia or India, where there's all these cultural barriers. And a very quick story of mine, one of these young global leaders at the World Economic Forum, an Indian guy, got up it and listened to my talk. And he pulled me aside afterwards and he said, Kate, I want to share a story with you. When I was 13 or 14 years old, I had a wet dream. And then, you know, I'd see all this like white stuff in my underwear and I thought I had cancer and I was so scared to talk to anyone, my parents, my brother, a doctor, because I didn't want to make everyone sad because I was going to die. Right. You hear so many stories like this. It's so terrible. And here's the thing. The same happens to girls. We get white stuff in our underwear. I mean, it's a different reason, but it's the same kind of thing, right? Well, it's really, you don't understand if you don't know anything about your body when it does things or produces things that you don't know about without information, it's replaced by fear often. Well, it's fear-based, but then it's also replaced by porn and you get your education, which is why it's so brilliant what Cindy is doing, right? And she talks about it with the lack of education, the ubiquity of porn, you know, the awkwardness of the conversation for any parent. No parent has ever said, I'm, well, I shouldn't say this. I have yet to meet the parent who says, oh, I'm dying to have the puberty conversation with my kids because they're going to love it. And there's never been a kid that I've ever heard of who said, I can't wait for my parents to give me that talk. And because of all those things and the cultural barriers, we wind up not having these conversations. 
not just in India or Indonesia, but in Dallas, in South America. In, and then when you add to that, the new legislation, you know, that was proposed in Florida, I'm working on a blog about this right now, most girls get their period before sixth grade and Florida's working on passing a law that says you can't talk about menstruation before sixth grade. And, you know, I wanna have a billboard that says, 48% of pregnancies every year are mistimed. That is a failure in birth control education. Well, listen, I can tell you that my 12-year-old just last night had her best friend over and we were having a conversation about it because her mother was almost like she knew what I did and she was struggling so much. She's twins, a boy and a girl. They're both 12 and the boy has a girlfriend. And I'm like, have you had the sex talk? And she's like, no. And I'm like, he's 12. Well, you better because we know he's locked up in the basement with her for two hours. I don't think they're playing tiddlywinks down there. Maybe they're doing a scene from Hamlet together. Yes. Hopefully no poison is involved. This is tragic, but we are out of time. I mean, I could talk to you for absolute hours and hours and hours and hours. Can I add one more thing about this education piece that you and I have discussed? There is actual research that suggests that young boys and girls who are taught the right names for their genitals and their body parts and what they're capable of and what they can do when you combine them and what their power is when you're alone, that they are much more likely to report instances of abuse or trauma. So I mentioned that because even if you decide you can't get your head around pleasure, you know, even if in the conversation you can't figure out how to talk to your kid about that, just prepare your child with language that he or she needs to go out into the world. Do you know what? Like, it would be as easy as holding up a puppet, not creating drama out of it, and having her name the different parts. And when it gets to the clitoris, which I'm pointing at right now, saying, what do you think that is for? And it's just as simple as that, right? And you'd be astounded. You wouldn't anymore, but lots of people are listening would be astounded as to what small percentage of people can answer most of the questions that you would pose, not because they're not smart, but because they've never been educated. It's not discussed in school. It's difficult for parents as you are doing. You're giving parents tools to make this easier. So you have a system that's so, so broken, which is why we need entrepreneurs in this space like you, like lots of the other people we get the privilege of working with to change the conversation by offering solutions. And there's nobody doing it better than you, Rachel. Oh, that's so nice of you to say. I doubt that, but that's very kind. Thank you for being on the show and to be continued for sure. I mean, we're collectively building a global movement and this is really what has to happen. But you've really led with orgasmic leadership. Well, I'm happy to be in the trenches alongside you. Yeah, no, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Great to see you. You too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. 
Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.